Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. With us, as always, is our own private devil witch, Joseph Wren. How are we doing, Joe? Welcome to the forest, where every fantasy, scary thing happens. And maybe you're going to find the witch at the end of the film. Maybe the witch isn't even real. I'm sorry, I'm talking about the Blair Witch Project, which is not the subject of tonight's <laughs> podcast. All you gruesome people. Right. Um, you know, uh, we're recording this, uh, this episode, uh, kind of at the end of October of 2022. Um, it's been a long period of time. I've been watching a lot of horror movies, uh, as one is wont to do in this time of year. And one of the things that's been so much fun has been reviewing a lot of stuff that I, I think people just kind of let slide, right? Uh, Probably either tonight or tomorrow. I haven't quite decided. I'm thinking I'm going to rewatch As Above, So Below. That has nothing to do really with this episode, by the way. But it's just one of those things that um, this show has been so much fun for me. And uh, Joe and I have actually been laughing about this quite a bit, uh, so to speak, off camera, about the absurd movies you end up watching in these things. And, you know, if you watch a lot of movies or are writing a podcast about movies, you're going to run into a lot of movies you just don't end up liking. Uh, we were talking initially a little bit about, uh, what was it, Event Horizon, and what was the other movie you referenced? Tied it into Ravenous. Ravenous. I made a comment after the last episode about this episode where Eyes of Fire has this weird, scary things are happening, but it doesn't pay off vibe that you're about to talk about. And I compared it to Ravenous, but I realized I was looking in the wrong direction. What I was really thinking was Event Horizon and how that movie is trying to set you up for the scary thing. And I'm going to say the scary thoughts that get inserted into Lawrence Fishburne's brain is not the same thing as the scary dude actually showing up and making something happen, but this film, it sets you up kind of how The Wicker Man does. I know we talked about that last episode where is it really a horror movie or is something just scary in the woods? And what's actually scary is that the people are scared because we're by ourselves and it's really, really dark outside. And what was that sound? And then the end of the movie happens because... You got to end the movie somehow, right? I've got to be honest with you. Of, of all the things we've ever discussed, and you and I talk about a lot, um, the thing that I can't get my head around is how you mistook Ravenous for Event Horizon. They're literal polar opposite films. I wasn't thinking of one movie and saying the other. I was making the wrong point. What I was really <laughs> trying to say was Ravenous is this beautiful film. I'll say it. Yeah. It is the darkest of darkest comedy that's funny but it's not supposed to be funny i remember that film being sold to me in the commercials as an actual horror movie and then when i saw it it is truly horrifying but it has this giddy joy about it that it's not supposed to be there and i i don't want to stand on the hill now and tell you that the purpose of that film is cannibalism is good right because i don't <laughs> think that's what ravenous was trying to tell me Event Horizon is one of those, it's really scary outside, right, films. And yeah, there's that fight at the end, but that even that feels like they're trying to tie the whole thing together instead of actually putting you into a horrifying situation. You know, one of the things that you, you come to in this kind of environment is that 
I, I am uh, an absolute uh, adoring fan of Event Horizon, but I also understand why people don't like it and they say it's a bad movie. Like the special effects are kind of dated. It's very much a time and place kind of piece. The the score and the soundtrack don't really make a lot of sense. They're kind of incoherent in some ways. And I could probably dedicate an entire episode of this show just talking about like bad horror movies or horror movies I don't like. You know, then there are movies that like you don't particularly enjoy but you appreciate them or you respect them. You know, for a long time, I thought Lucio Fulci's The Beyond was just utter crap. But you know what? After a rewatch and some time to think, I think that movie actually deserves the love and admiration it gets, even if I'm not really crazy about it. And we're all adults, right? That means that you can grow in your opinions, or at least that's what my family has tried to tell me for several decades. And that says nothing of the movies you love because you you just love them for whatever reason. I understand why people don't like David Lynch, but I love David Lynch movies, and so I get it. But then there's this tiny category that exists beyond the others. Um, I don't really have a good phrase to describe it. You know, they're not guilty pleasures, and they aren't movies that are so bad it's good. It's something entirely else. It's a movie that is perhaps a successful failure. Joe, how does does this does successful failure work? I think it's a good place to start. There is something to be said about horror movies and films, entertainment in general. You can't really talk about the best thing ever if you haven't been through the worst thing. And one of the biggest mistakes in horror specifically is not watching the bad movies. Sometimes it's so bad it's good. Other times it's so disturbing and there was no Hitchcock-esque release. The audience doesn't get the payoff. It's just brutal for the sake of being brutal. I'm thinking of The Human Centipede Part 2. Oof, yeah, yeah. But then successful failures are the films that do something so well, but maybe just don't know how to end. <laughs> I think the original cut of Clerks is a good example of this. You don't have to consider the first Clerks to be a good movie or a successful movie, even though it launched a career, many careers, in fact. But the original cut of that movie, Dante just gets shot at the end of the movie. And talk about one of the best edits you could make after the fact you did that not because it needed to happen. You did that because you didn't know how to end the movie. And I think successful failures are that. And I think Eyes of Fire is going to be that. You're going to go into more details momentarily, but Eyes of Fire sets up this really creepy atmosphere and then just throws a bunch of witch stuff at you. <laughs> okay, so if if we're going to call uh, many movies, and specifically Eyes of Fire, the subject matter for this uh, episode, a successful failure... What makes it a successful failure? Well, outside of struggling to come up with a title, uh, this has been a thing I've been trying to describe for a while. In some regards, I think that a movie like, uh, I don't know, Bloodstone, Subspecies Part 2, uh, falls into this category. It's a fun movie with a lot of positive qualities, right? But let's be honest here. It's not a good movie. Not, not in the classical sense, right? The acting in it is uneven. The special effects are a little cheap and a little oddball. It's technically competent, sure, but it's not really 
artful or <laughs> even that like high quality. <laughs> the, the hallmark of that sort of movie is that it makes up for its technical deficiencies by having a charm or a vibe for lack of a better word. Like maybe it's visually really unrelenting. Think uh, a lot of early Hong Kong action flicks. All of those movies are visually really distinct and they have this again, kinetic quality inherited in part from traditional Chinese opera. But a lot of these movies were shot on a shoestring budget, so they had to make the most out of the production. Another common quality to successful failures is that they're said to be kind of dreamlike. That's a little harder to pin down, but horror fans know what I'm talking about. I wouldn't put uh, this movie uh, into the category of successful failure, but a movie like the original Phantasm, it has this like disconnected floating feeling and a lot of the plot elements are wholly surreal, sometimes in an otherwise kind of seemingly normal film. What about the original American Psycho? Oh, that's an interesting one, right? Uh, have you read the book American Psycho? I have not. Okay. Uh, first of all, you should read it, but like, ugh, it's ugly. It's it's a it's a really rough read. If it's even half as ugly as the film, I know what I'm getting into. <laughs> it's twice as ugly. Twice as ugly. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. But it. I, I do think that that's an interesting question. I, I Mary Heron, the director, is an endlessly, endlessly competent director. So I believe fully that she intentionally went in with the angle of where this is going to be 50% real and 50% Bateman's dream, or at least that's my read of it. And I don't know if that's true or not. I think I think that movie lends itself to a lot of uh to a lot of potential to be phantasmagorical, to be dreamlike. So yeah, I, I think that's an interesting, uh, an interesting question. So the film we're going to talk about tonight, like I said, it's a successful failure. That's Eyes of Fire. It's a 1983 horror joint directed by Avery Krauts, typically considered a folk horror. Uh, as we stated at the top of the show, I hadn't exactly planned on doing a bunch of folk horror at once, but the blood on Satan's claw kind of opened up a lot of questions for me. And I've been thinking a lot about the way movies work, like how they succeed and fail. And I think this is a really good case study. One of my favorite directors of all time is Werner Herzog. Uh, in the book Herzog on Herzog, he says, quote, film is not analysis. It is the agitation of mind. Cinema comes from the country fair and the circus, not from art and academicism. I need you to do that again, only in your Herzog voice. But my voice is entirely too sore to do that. <laughs> I think I might have talked about this in a previous episode, but I've taken this dictum to heart. And it's part of the reason I have taken the approach to this show that I have. I think that academic film criticism is of kind of limited utility for the average person. Even cinema, at its most severe or most extreme, it's ultimately a form of entertainment. Sure, uh, some films are extremely informative, but it's not a college lecture, right? And I don't have a problem with the scholastic sides of film criticism. It's just not for me. And I think talking about Eyes of Fire in some sort of hard, critical terminology sort of misses the point of what it's doing. There's room to discuss where Eyes of Fire fits into the greater canon of cinema, but I'm not going to be the man to do it. I'm sorry. There are plenty of interesting reviews and commentaries out there on this movie, and I will throw a few of the quicker reads of that uh, into the show notes. Instead, I want to talk about what this movie gets correct from a viewer's standpoint, how it also fails, and why it's just so odd. So, uh, I, I don't know. Let's talk plot. Eyes of Fire 
opens in a French encampment along the French-English border of the recently colonized North America. The French soldiers are grilling a group of children about how they ended up there and where the non-French colonists were in the French territory. From there, the children serve as narrators of the story, explaining how they were once a part of banished apostates from what appears to be a puritanical sect of English colonists. This particular sect was so hardcore that they were going to hang the apostates for adultery, as well as a minor case of witchcraft. The group manages to escape when Leah, one of our major protagonists, seems to use some strange magic to save the life of Will Smythe, who is maybe a heretic, maybe just an adulterer, but he's 100% an asshole. Completely unlovable, he chews the scenery in this movie. Uh, Will Smythe is played by Dennis Lipscomb. You'll know Dennis Lipscomb if you've seen him. Uh, he's in War Games, Under Siege. He also shows up in some episodes of Perry Mason, uh, The X-Files, and I think ER. In other words, a classic sort of character actor, the perfect image of a working journeyman actor type. And really, that's most of the cast. It's a lot of Broadway stalwarts and character actors. Fun cast? no real huge names. So back on subject. After evading their would-be executioners, our group of apostates head downriver, and shortly thereafter, they're followed by Marion, the husband of Will Smythe's adulterous partner. Marion is a fur trapper, so he knows his way through the wilderness. Once he connects with the group, the stage is set. Soon enough, they are dead center of the woods, surrounded by spectral enemies and haunting images. Will they survive? It's a horror movie. To answer the question, they're going to get the crap killed out of them. I do not hate the actor portraying Will Smythe, but if there was ever a better portrayal of that guy who is either trying to start a cult or trying to start his own church and just wants everybody to look at what he's doing, this guy nails it. It's okay to hate somebody in a movie if they're supposed to be the bad guy. And I feel like he's supposed to be the bad guy because he's the one dragging everyone into the desert with no water, no supplies, saying, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as like... Pay Jim, attention to me. As far as Jim Jones types goes, he's pretty... Uh, you had to say it. I was trying not to. <laughs> I mean, I, I, come on. It, it, the obvious thing there is like Jim Jones, Charles Manson. There's the, the crossover that I think we all see uh but the thing that immediately comes to mind is he's a tryhard and he's the worst kind of tryhard the biblical tryhard so right we've got the rough plot and that's a pretty good setup for an artsy more dreamlike horror flick it's sort of a prototype again for a movie like the witch the sad thing is it just doesn't cut the mustard here Let's start with what I think is one of the most overwhelming issues. The voiceover that helps narrate the whole thing feels wildly out of place. It's, it's sort of unnecessary, given that the actors who are on screen the entire time are perfectly competent. And the script isn't that nutty that you can't follow it at all. It's weird. Let's not make any bones about that. But it's not so weird that you have to have a narrator explaining things. I think that's a decision in light of the 60s and 70s adventure mountain man movie trend, almost like a Davy Crockett or a Jeremiah Johnson thing where they're trying to remind the audience that these people are supposed to succeed, but they don't know yet. 
Okay, uh, maybe that's true. I don't know. Uh, I've got to be honest. I'm not what you would describe as an expert in talking about Mountain Man movies. <laughs> so, uh, I think one of the things that's happening here is that you have to remember that Eyes of Fire is not at all what Avery Krauss, the director, actually wanted. Um, Eyes of Fire is actually an edit of Krauss's first movie, which is called Cry Blue Sky. Uh, from what I was able to glean, it's 30 minutes longer than Eyes of Fire and allegedly has a different flow, quote unquote. The only place where you can find it, to my knowledge, is the recently released Blu-ray of Eyes of Fire, and I just haven't been able to get my hands on a copy of it. Uh, this admittedly presents an issue for me as a reviewer, if you want to call me that, um, in that one might think you need to watch both to comment, but honestly, I think I disagree. Uh, I think Cry Blue Sky hasn't existed in the same way that Eyes of Fire has, and ultimately, do we need to know what the director wanted? It's an interesting question and something we can discuss another time. Uh, if we want to hear your opinions on this issue. Contact us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com. So anyway, uh, what that means is you are seeing Eyes of Fire on Shutter or maybe on a bootleg. It's kind of a mutant version of what could have been with this film. And given that I've seen plenty of movies suffering from quote-unquote decision by committee syndrome, the narrative voiceover is distracting and honestly kind of annoying. I mean, that says nothing of the seemingly oddball pacing and sometimes absolutely disintegrating storyline, which, again, is an obvious issue with editing and trying to salvage something watchable out of a longer version of a film. And I mean what I said a second ago. There are a lot of places in this movie, specifically at the end of it, where the movie feels like it's kind of just falling apart. You know, folk <laughs> horror might be a genre known for like overly odd atmospheres, but this is different. It just kind of loses the plot and it gets increasingly more poorly acted. I don't know if that's something they filmed in sequence and that's why it feels messy being at the end, or just wasn't thought out or edited badly. I, I, I don't know. So let's talk about the script for a second. Most of my notes from my final watch through are about how I was kind of annoyed by the movie. There's a lot of confusing dialogue, for instance. Uh, some examples. Leah, our supernatural protagonist, is coded to be like a good witch or some sort of fairy or changeling or something. It's never really explained. Moreover, there's a dialogue in the beginning about Leah's mother having been executed for witchcraft by immolation. Okay, that's fine if she was in Europe when it happened, but most American witch killing was done via hanging, so where did this happen? And does it matter? Frankly, no. It, it seems like it was added for, I don't know, exposition or something? But is it necessary? It's hinted at that our protagonists are Irish, given some kind of like, you know, uh, dialect and language details they've added. The actors, man, uh, they just couldn't keep it up or do it convincingly. And I don't know what the case is there, so why have it, right? Uh, small spoiler, there's plenty of dialogue about the film's antagonist being a quote-unquote devil witch. And yeah, neat detail. So? We don't know anything about the devil witch, really. I also know and have said before that we don't need to know everything about villains, but you know, it might still help, especially for something as disjointed as this movie. And yet, I really do appreciate this movie. You know, for all of its faults, 
Eyes of Fire is a special, strange film. I don't know that I would recommend it to most people. I wish I had seen this film, or or frankly, uh, had access to this film in my 20s. This movie would go really well with the volume off and like an early Skinny Puppy album being played in the background as a score. This movie does have a real atmosphere, sure, but compared to many of its peers in the folk horror world, it's less atmospheric and just more unsettling. Uh, Avery Krauts, the director, started his career as a photographer, and it shows. If nothing else, this movie has an incredible visual style. It looks great for the time period. Uh, There's a sequence early on in the movie's runtime, uh, essentially kind of at the threshold of the normal part of the film, and it's beginning to get its abstract spooky stuff at the marks of a a second and third act. There's this large tree, and it, it and the ground is covered in feathers? It's a strange image, and I guess it makes sense in the context of the movie, or at least as anything else does in this movie. I'm not surprised because you're telling the truth. That's actually what happens in the movie. (laughs) The tree is described uh, in the film as a marker of a quote-unquote taboo place. It's pretty clever, really, when you think about it. The tree serves as a marker for not only the characters, but for us, the audience, as well. It's a marvelous example of what we've described before and how sometimes style serves as substance. It's not Argento's Suspiria, But it is really cool. And really, most of the horror effects in this movie are actually kind of inspired. Again, Krauts was a photographer, so he seems to lean in heavily on that. The film is manipulated, seemingly like painted over with all sorts of strange color distortions and overlays. It reminds me of my brief experiencing of developing photos in a proper darkroom. There's a certain level of organic playfulness that you only get from that sort of art background, at least in my experience. Admittedly, those sorts of special effects don't really hold up now, but go back and watch about 70% of the horror films of the 1970s and 1980s even, even some of your favorites. Most of them, the special effects are not great. And let's all admit it, okay? We're all adults here. There are no judgments on this show about taste. A lot of those horror effects, they look bad now, like I said. Like, I love the original Hellraiser. It's maybe one of my favorite horror movies of all time. But a lot of those effects, today, they they don't look great. Outside of the makeup work, the optical effects in that flick are rough, even by the standards of that time period. So I can be pretty forgiving on how Eyes of Fire looks at this point. I don't know that these sorts of special effects are like somehow charming or nostalgia or whatever, whatever. I think they certainly are imaginative. And I honestly don't know that one needs to watch horror movies for sheer realism, especially a movie like this. The best effects, in my opinion, are always going to be practical. I understand CGI exists. I understand it's cheaper. I understand there is artistry in how it is used when you use it to enhance what is actually on screen. And we know It's been overused, it's been underutilized, meaning that when it is used, they don't put a lot of time and effort into the details. And just like how these effects show over time, some of the old CGI looks terrible compared to what they did in Terminator 2. Why am I bringing this up? Yeah, they might not hold up today like they did 20 years ago, but at least you can say what they did on screen actually happened or somebody actually had to put that together. 
Yeah, I, I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I'm not completely on the fuck CGI train. I'm not. I, I there's I think there's a real value in some computer generated effects. Having seen recently a lot of movies that couldn't have happened without CGI, I think when it's well done and it's handled with care by people who actually give a crap about what movies look like, I think it's great. But I'll take charmingly dated uh, practical effects any day of the week, if only for my own amusement. Um, I do want to talk for a split second about the character Leah, who is uh, portrayed by Carlene Crockett, who is the fairy, changeling, good witch of the forest type character. She's visually really striking and has this mass of curly red hair and like the strange like costume. She's an oddball character in a cast full of oddball characters, given that she mostly carries on through this like fake language glossolalia through about 65% of the movie. Uh, I want to try and find some way to compare her to someone else in folk horror, or for that matter, in horror cinema at all. And really, I have a hard time with that. I mean, yeah, Joe, we were sort of talking uh, off camera again about about this character, Leah, and the actress, Carlene Crockett. What, 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 were, what were we talking about with that? I like that you referred to her as a fairy or a changeling, because I didn't think of her that way when I watched this film. Clearly, she's supposed to have some power or she's communicating with the wilderness in a way that we can't hear. So it would be good filmmaking if I'm not supposed to hear it, if I can't hear it. But the way she wanders around, I felt like it was implied some type of mental disorder or even she's doing a Helen Keller thing because she's ignored as much as she's paid attention to. And even when she's the one that has a solution to the problem, seemingly, they still try to find a way to just not mention that Marion just did that. Or, <laughs> they try to find a way to mention to not mention that Leah just did that. You know, uh, Carlene Crockett, uh, after this, apparently went on to just go back to the stage. Like, she apparently ended up being a... Yeah, uh, not prominent, you know, she's not winning Tonys or anything, but a working actress uh, on uh, for plays on stage. And good for her. Uh, she's a really fascinating character, so it's good to know she ended up getting some steady work kind of after the fact. But there's one thing that keeps happening in this movie with her that I don't understand. For whatever reason, she ends up nude for about, I don't know, a sixth of the film. I get it. Um, a lot of films, horror films in the 1980s, you couldn't get directors to not end up taking a woman's top off and no judgments you like what you like but did you ever figure out joe at any point why she kept ended up naked i still can't figure it out <laughs> and i i may have just talked myself into this movie being better than i thought it was when we started this conversation <laughs> because if you think about the gibberish and the wandering around aimlessly and not as the audience being able to hear anything that's going on in her head for her to show up at the very end of the film when the badass of the film is hand to hand with the witch tree or as I referred to it as Marjorie the wonderful trash heap because that's what she looks like Fraggle Rock baby gotta love it at that point she shows up nude and she's speaking in clear plain direct English I think we're supposed to take the gibberish thing literal. Like, huh. that's her communicating, maybe not telepathically, but is she actually tuned in? 
is the whole film her communicating with the forest about where the witch is and how she can win the battle and then eventually at the very end she gets into the position where she can take the power to quote her literally <laughs> yeah. and now is when she's going to turn off the gibberish and the nonsense and be like give me the thing <laughs> I, I, I hate I hate to admit it Lucas but hindsight talking about it has made me like the film more than I did when we started you know, and it's those sorts of factors that make me describe this movie as a successful failure, right? Uh, I, I've seen figures saying that Eyes of Fire made like roughly $12 million on a budget of just a little over $2 million. And that's not a failure in any regard, obviously. But outside of terminal weirdos like me and you, who the hell is talking about this movie? You know, as I said previously, I've found a lot of modern writers talking about Eyes of Fire recently, which... With all due respect to those writers, I guess you're all weird like me. Um, apparently, this movie was re-released by Severin Films in a folk horror compilation called All the Haunts Be Ours, along with a batch of a, just a whole bunch of other like deep cuts from the genre. And yeah, for the record, I, I, I want a copy of that for myself. Uh, Severin also released it as an essentially standalone uh, film with a copy of Crying Blue Sky, the original the Cry Blue Sky, Crying Blue Sky. I should probably have clarified that in my notes. Uh, apparently, they have the original film attached to that DVD. So it is nice seeing this movie get a, an afterlife of sorts without some bad cash grab remake. So where does that leave us with Eyes of Fire? I'm personally left with a strange feeling that this movie isn't saying terribly much. It sort of reminds me of Ken Russell's Altered States in that the story is being told through how strange it is and it really isn't that deep of a story at the end. We all remember uh, my ranting about Incident in a Ghostland. I still think that the, it's a film written by someone who thinks the script is way more intelligent than it actually is. In its absolute pointlessness, Incident in a Ghostland falls beneath the ability to have any sort of conversation or discourse. But does a movie have to be making some sort of bigger point to be enjoyable? Or does a film have to have some sort of grand statement to be ultimately valuable? In this case, I have to say the answer is no in both regards. Eyes of Fire is a mess, but it's a fun, interesting mess. Unlike Ghostland, it's not likely to poke at your sensibilities for no reason. And yeah, there's some mild nudity that really doesn't add to the script, but it doesn't like distract from the story either. And yeah, there's some violence in it, but it's coherent and it's mostly so abstract that it's hard for it to offend or, or like distract you. I think I've said it plenty here, but again, Eyes of Fire, it's not, it's not for everybody. I think most people who really appreciate this probably already have pretty like rarefied tastes in movies. You gotta like your movies obscure to dig this one. It's definitely for the sort of people who happily shell out a couple of bucks a month for Shudder memberships, and that includes me. But this film is a fun, strange aside in the grander scheme of things. I might have poked a little fun about the overall canon of cinema early in this episode, and I've struggled to not slide into some serious pedantry. I think I am ultimately wanting people to just stretch their tastes a little bit and check this one out. You are right. She's a fairy or a changeling or something because she's wearing clothes to blend in with the humans. <laughs> You are still stuck on this, aren't you? I am seeing more of this film than I did <laughs> the last time I watched it before we started talking. You know, I'd like to think that if all of my years of watching horror movie or what my uh, what my best friends have called wasting my time, uh, 
I'd like to think that I've I've accomplished something. We're we're making progress, Joe. We're making progress. Thanks, Lucas. Yeah. The successful failure is something of a conundrum for me. I don't think that I am, in a technical sense, a, a particularly deep film critic, which works out in a way. I'm not particularly interested in over-intellectualizing a movie. I am instead wanting to play with taboo or unacceptable subjects and to help see how these subjects connect and intersect with, you know, as a result, with art and culture. So when you're dealing with a film such as Eyes of Fire, you are left to wrestle a little bit. The movie isn't making a bold statement, but it is still worth consideration. And how do you talk about it, really? In a way, I'm glad that services like Shudder are helping to expose audiences to films like this. This sort of movie isn't going to move the needle if it's shown somewhere like Netflix. I don't think so anyway. And maybe that's for the best. Not every movie is for everyone. And I must say, my dear listeners, the next few episodes are going to prove that. In spades. And with that, I must ask, what do you think? Are you a fan of Eyes of Fire? If you haven't seen it before now, are you going to go check that out tonight? And what sort of weird, deep-cut horror classics should I go check out? Let us know by contacting us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com. Joe, where can our fans find your other works? I want everyone that listens to heavy metal, extreme music, and likes to talk about scary subjects sometimes to go listen to all the podcasts at discussmetal.com where we're talking about your favorite bands our favorite bands and sometimes sketchy subjects so check that out and absolutely go to the fright lab podcast.com where we have all the things that you're supposed to have when you have a podcast such as social media links uh other podcasts that you can download and links to all these shows and all these show notes if you found this podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on whether that's spotify apple podcasts i need you to put a five-star review i need you to leave comments and again send us emails let us know what you're thinking about these things that we are speaking about and if you are someone who likes to make scary sounds and you want to hear your music on our podcast or if you're interested in creating some ambient sounds for a scary podcast let us know As we've said throughout multiple episodes, Joe and I really love indie artists and indie art. So if you have some sort of project you want amplified in that way, again, specifically right now, we're looking for musicians and music. Let us know. We will happily promote your show on the air and maybe we'll uh, play it on the air. That'd be pretty cool, right? Which brings us to the end here. That's our show for tonight. Give us a follow on Twitter at fright underscore lab underscore pod and tell your friends about the show as always the fright lab is written and researched by me lucas yokum it's produced and co-hosted by the one and only joseph wren we appreciate each and every one of you thank you so much and we'll see you soon as always the fright lab is written and researched and performed by me I'm going to fucking reread that because that sucked. As always, Fright Lab Podcat is writ Podcat? Meow. Meow.com. Um, Meow, bitch. As always, the Fright Lab Podcast. <laughs> you can tell we're at the end of the night. Holy, you can't do it, man. We're shit. not doing four this time. Okay. I don't hate Will Smythe. <laughs> you would. You would like him. I fucked it up. I'm sorry. <laughs>
the successful successful. You mean Leah? The judicial system. <laughs> the judicial system. 